chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Obviously, we're changing things up uh, this morning slightly. We're going to be uh, getting into the Word, looking at what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, maybe better called the Disciples' Prayer. And we'll look at it in three sections. And so we'll have a period of Word, and then we'll have a period of response as we'll have some led prayer time. We'll close in prayer, and then we'll respond to the Word in song. And we'll do so three times. So that's how things are going to roll this morning. Luke chapter 11, we'll be focusing our efforts on verses 1 through 4. Let's pray together, and then we'll dive in. Father, we ask now that you would come in power, and that you would open our eyes to the wonder of who you are, that we, as your followers and as your sons and daughters, can call you Abba Father, because you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would teach us to pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, I was talking not too long ago with one of my daughters, and I asked her, as we do periodically, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she thought about it a moment, and she said, well, I really would like to be a cook, a chef. I said, that's great. I like to eat. That works out well. Um, And she said, but I also really would like to be a a veterinarian, a vet. And I said, okay, how's that going to work? She said, well, Dad, for two days a week, um, I'll be a vet. And for three days, I'll be a chef. I was like, great, that sounds good. And so later that evening, it was dinner time, and Shelly was in the, uh, the kitchen preparing dinner. And I said, hey, honey, guess what? Mom's about to prepare dinner. And since you want to be a chef, well, you know, the best way to learn is by what? It's by practice, right? So why don't you hop in there and help Mom make dinner? And you know what her response was? Uh, not now. <laughs> not now. You know, sometimes we Christians... I think we do a lot of talking about prayer, but we don't find ourselves very often in the kitchen. Like many things in life, the best way to learn how to pray is to actually practice it. It's it's to do it. And so this morning, we're going to embark on a, a sermon series on prayer simply entitled, Teach Us to Pray. Teach Us to Pray. Of course, that comes from Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 4, as one of Jesus' disciples approaches him and says, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. And so the discourse begins with a request. The discourse begins in verse 1 with a simple request, teach us how to pray. And then it moves from the request to Jesus' response in verses 2 through 4, as Jesus replies, pray this way. Lord, teach us to pray. Pray in this way. And then in verses we won't cover, but are wonderful verses, verses 5 through 13, we see the reasons for prayer. Jesus not only teaches us, his disciples, how to pray with a model prayer, but he goes on to give us several incentives, several reasons in parable format why we should pray, focusing on the character of our Heavenly Father the one that we are praying to. And so let's turn and look in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, with the very simple request. Luke writes, One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. 
And so the scene begins in Luke chapter 11 with a very brief description of Jesus doing something that was probably a very familiar sight to his disciples. What was Jesus doing? Well, he had gone off to a certain place, some uh, likely an isolated place, and he was praying. In fact, Luke in chapter 5 and Luke in chapter 9 had already recorded that Jesus, as a part of his sort of regular ministry, his regular life, went off, uh, left his disciples, and spent time praying to his Father. And so it's no coincidence then that this request that Jesus would teach the disciples how to pray comes on the heels of his example to them of praying to the Father. In fact, the disciple says, Jesus, we want you to teach us to pray like John, that is John the Baptist, like John taught his disciples to pray. It was actually very common in Judaism in Jesus' day for rabbis and teachers to teach their disciples a corporate prayer that they would sort of recite and, and pray together. It was, uh, it was a way to sort of mark this group of disciples as being distinct. And so John the Baptist apparently taught his disciples, this is, this is how we are going to pray together as a group of disciples. And most likely, this particular disciple had actually been a disciple of John first. And so he, he says, are you going to do that for us? Are you going to teach us together how to pray together? It's worth noting in verse 1, as Dr. Daryl Bach of Dallas Seminary points out, that this disciple is not asking for an individual model of prayer. In other words, he doesn't necessarily have in mind, Jesus, teach me how to pray so that I can go off by myself and pray alone. Certainly that's encouraged and acceptable, right? We as followers of Christ should do that. But I don't think that's what he has in mind. Notice the pronouns, Lord, what does he say? Teach me to pray? What does he say? Lord, teach us Teach us, your followers, and I think the implication is how we should pray together. And so the the request, really, when you think about it, and you consider it in light of all the Gospels, and all that we see in Jesus' interaction with his disciples, and their interaction with him, it's a really astounding request. Because it's it's the only time, as far as I know, in any of the Gospels, that a disciple asks Jesus to teach them to do something. Just ponder that just for a moment. We don't have any other record of any other disciple approaching Jesus and saying, I see that you're doing this and I need to know how how to do it like you. We need to know how to do it like you. They certainly could have. Lord, teach us to preach. Lord, teach us to heal the sick. Lord, teach us to to cast out demons, but we don't have that on record. What we do have on record is this individual disciple, I think speaking for the group, recognizing that there was something different about the way Jesus prayed and something different about how they should pray as his followers. Lord, teach us to pray. I sense that there was some deep, inadequacy in his own heart. 
in this request. And if I'm honest, and if you're honest, I bet that we often feel that sense of inadequacy when it comes to the subject matter of this most vital spiritual activity of prayer. I don't know about you, but prayer is something that I, I often maybe associate with guilt. Because, well, I don't do it as much as I should, or, or even as much as I want to. I can associate it with inadequacy. I don't know about you. I just don't know how to pray. I can't pray like so-and-so. I can't pray like Mrs. So-and-so. I can't pray like, like Paul does. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to do it. I can often associate it with fear. In particular, praying in public. Well, I'm just going to embarrass myself. I don't have the right words. And so there, I think in this disciple's heart, seeing the example of Jesus and, and having this deficiency, he speaks for the group. And, and, and friends, I pray that it's our prayer this morning and throughout this series that we would ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Pastor Thibidi Anabwile, I think I got that right, speaks of what, he can, what we, we learn from this request of this disciple saying this. He says, the request, Lord, teach us how to pray, means that prayer is not something learned automatically. This prayer, it's not natural. He writes, effective prayer has to be taught and learned. And I really like what he says here. He says, there's no shame in not knowing how to pray or, or, or feeling uncomfortable in prayer. There's only shame if we don't ask to be taught. And as a result, spend the years of our Christian lives ineffective in prayer. Friends, let's not do that. Let's not do that. May I suggest from the outset of this sermon series that we as individual and that we as a body of Christ, that we would humbly and honestly seek the Lord and saying, Lord, during this time as we look at what the Bible says about prayer and the model of prayer and as we learn from praying together, that we would humbly ask, Lord, we don't know how to pray as we should. Teach us how to pray. The story is told of a, a missionary by the name of Joanne Shelter. And she was with Wycliffe, or Wycliffe Bible translators. And she was working in the Philippines. And she was noticing amongst the, the, the early church that she had planted that the, the, the Christians there, they just weren't praying together as, as she felt like they should. And so she prayed a very similar prayer to what we see in, in verse 1. She said, Lord, do whatever it takes to teach this church, this congregation, this people, how to pray. In God's providence, about a month later, she was uh, in a helicopter going back to the island, and there was a crash, and she almost died. And it was that event that prompted the people to pray, because they, they, they weren't done with their Bible translation. They had no scriptures, and so they were thrust into prayer. And she writes how it was that event, it was how the Lord answered that request that taught these, these folks how to pray. How will Jesus respond to this request? Lord, teach us how to pray. In verses 2 through 4, he's going to essentially say, pray this way. This is how you all should pray. Notice verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, well, and then we're going to go on to the content. But before we do, I think we need to notice some things right off the bat. He said to them, when you pray, the presumption is that what? 
they will pray. <laughs> the presumption is that not only individual Christians will pray, Lord, teach us how to pray. What's the presumption then? When you all pray. And so the presumption is that the people of God come together to pray, first and foremost. Second of all, Jesus, I don't believe, is giving us a, a sort of rote prayer to recite. I don't know about you, but I have the Lord's Prayer memorized, uh, at least a particular version of it. And uh, I have it memorized because in my sports days, which was many years ago, before we would play a game, we would all gather together on a knee and the coach would say, men, let's pray. And we hit the, hit the deck with our knees and what did we do? We held hands and we recited the Lord's Prayer as quickly as we possibly could. Our Father, whenever, hallowed be the name, like just boom, 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 right? Let's get to the game. Um, and so I have it memorized. I don't think that's what really Jesus intended this to be. Um, this is a model. It's a template meant to be added to, uh, to use the, an analogy from the human body. It's a skeleton in which we are to add ligaments and muscles and flesh. Right? This is a, a, a sort of a baseline prayer for us to, to then expand upon. Notice also, he said to them, when you pray, uh, when you pray, plural, right? The corporate nature of prayer. Um, in our English, we can't differentiate between a singular you, you, and a plural you. You, right? In Texas, we do this well. When y'all pray, right? that's, that's how we do it in Texas. Smart. When y'all pray, all of us together, right? It's, it's a corporate prayer. And then notice if you're thinking, boy, this, this is like a little shorter version than I'm used to. That's because Luke's is kind of bare bone. Matthew, there's a little bit more, right? But this is kind of bare bones. It's the Cliff Notes version, if you will, that Jesus is giving that Luke records. Okay. He said to them, when you pray, say what? Father, right? And so Jesus not only teaches us here in a moment what to pray for, but first he teaches us whom to pray to. Say, Father. This is a term that a child would use to, to address his dad. So right off the bat, Jesus is couching corporate prayer um, as, as like a family conversation, right? It's like when, when you all, as a family, come together, pray to your Heavenly Father. It's a family conversation, like a family gathering. I don't know if you ever do that. It's like, okay, family meeting. We need to talk about this, that, or the other. Everybody come. I don't know if you do that or not. But if you do, that's, that's sort of what this is. All right, everybody in the family come. We're going to talk to our Heavenly Father. Father. The term goes back to the Aramaic word Abba, which combines both respect for a father's authority with a sense of intimacy. And so it, it, it's, it's, it's both hand, right? We respect our Father, but there's a sense in which we are intimate with our Father. And so when we pray together as Christians, it's close, it's personal. We're praying to our, our loving and our kind and our generous Father, but we're also praying to the God who spoke the entire creation into being. We're speaking to the God of gods who is altogether holy as the angels in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy. The one when human beings approach Him and enter into His presence, um, they can't control their bladder. Right? We, we, we're praying to that God, to that Father. And so we draw near to Him as our children, but we do so with reverence and respect and submission. You know, Dwight uh, Eisenhower's son, David, 
of course, former President Dwight Eisenhower. His son David once spoke of a moment when he was a child. He was a young child. And he, he recalls the moment when, he, when it clicked in his mind that his dad was not just daddy. That his dad was like a figure, you know, some important figure. They were at a military base in Europe. And he describes being in like a, the upstairs of a, of a room. And then his dad stepped out onto this balcony area. And when his dad stepped out onto the balcony, the troops below snapped to attention, you know, and he, he, he saw these hundreds of thousands of troops, maybe. And he said, whoa, <laughs> right? This is not just dad. He's the, he's the commander of the, of the armies of the United States. And I think this term, Abba, Father, we're reminded that he is our Father. And that he is the God of gods. There's a general sense, then, that we as Christians call God our Father. There's a sense in which all people... Uh, that, that God is, is their father. We see in Acts chapter, chapter 17 that because God is the creator of all people, in a sense, we are all his offspring. But what Jesus is speaking of here is a prayer that only Christians can pray. That we can only call him our father if we are adopted into his family through faith in Christ. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 shows us that when a person is, is born again, that we become his children, and that then we can say, Father, our Father that art in heaven. And so the first requirement of this prayer is that we be born again, that we are Christians and that we are adopted into his family and that we have placed our trust and our faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone for salvation so that we can approach him with, our, with other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, Father. And so we see, first and foremost, the response. Pray this way. Well, how are we, how are we to pray? Well, first of all, it's who we pray to, our Father. So what we're going to do now is we're going to, we're going to respond to God's revelation. I'm going to give you just a moment to pray together. I'm going to ask Kent to come lead us in a prayer. And then we're going to respond to the word in song. And so would you pray with me as we ponder the truths that God has revealed to us? Father, we are grateful that we have the privilege of calling you up. So we've seen the request, starting in verse 1. We've seen Jesus begin to respond when you pray together, say, Father. Next, what we see is Jesus teaches us five subjects to pray for. Five requests that we should make. And I think the subject, uh, excuse me, the order is significant. The first two requests that Jesus teaches us to pray together are for or are about God. They are Godward. The last three requests are for or about us. They are manward. That is, Jesus clearly teaches us to put, to put God and his glory and his agenda uh, at the, uh, the forefront of our prayers together. And friends, I would suggest that Jesus, in teaching us to pray in this way, is trying to reshape our hearts. He's trying to, to, to change our priorities. He's, he's teaching us how to pray in, in the order of requests given. In fact, C.S. Lewis was once asked by a skeptic. The skeptic said, do you really think that your prayers change God? Or do your prayers change God's mind? To which he, he, re, he replied, well, no, I don't, I don't think that. Prayer is meant to change me. 
And I think Jesus in this model is teaching us to be changed by uh, what, our, what we prioritize in prayer. And so the, the first request is God's prestige. We'll see Jesus teaching us to pray for God's prestige, his program, his provision, his pardon, and yes, the last one is a P also, his protection. Number one, God's prestige. When you pray, say, Father, what? Hallowed be your name, or thy name if you want to go with Old English. Hallowed be your name. Now, when I ask you a question, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but how many of you have used the term hallowed in the past week? Any of you? Past month? Past year? Probably not. Um, this is not really a term that we use in, in even modern English, how to hallow something. Um, the word simply means to treat something or someone as holy. That's what it means. So when something is hallowed, it is treated by another as holy. And so Jesus says, pray this way, hallowed be, Father, your name. Now, what is God's name? What does that mean? Well, I think we need to think holistically. A person's name refers to really all of who they are and what they have done. It's who they are. It's their reputation. Um, and so it's, it's holistic. And so Jesus is simply teaching us to pray that God's reputation and that his, re- his renown uh, would be revered. That, that we and that people everywhere would uh, respond to God for who he is. That is, he is holy. That he would be exalted in the hearts and minds and lives of people. That he would receive the honor and glory that he alone deserves. And so how then does Jesus teach us to begin our prayers together? Father, glorify your name. Hallowed be your name. May, may we and may everyone treat you as you deserve to be treated. John, oh, and here's the last, last name that's hard for me. John Anwuchikwa, in his wonderful little book, Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church, says of this verse, he says, it is praying, this little request, it's praying that God himself would protect his name from being defamed and obscured so that people don't accept a wrong picture of him or reject a distorted picture of him. It's really good. It's praying that everyone would respond appropriately to the Father, to Jesus. And so how do we begin our corporate prayers? What is our emphasis? What is our focus? It's on God's prestige. Secondly, Jesus teaches us to pray for God's program. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, and then what? Your, you know it, right? Kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So what is Jesus teaching us to pray for here? I think God's kingdom is multifaceted. Uh, It is advancing here and now on the earth in the the body of Christ as the gospel is preached and proclaimed in the entire world and we're making disciples of all the nations. That, that, that is, in a sense, that, that God's kingdom through the church is, is here and now. And yet we know that the kingdom of, of God in its entirety, in its fullness, well, it's not, it's not here yet. It's not, it's, not, it's not here. 
It will happen when Jesus returns to earth. And so this, this request then is we're praying that God's kingdom program would advance both now and ultimately forever. Again, on Wachiku simplifies it as saying that this is a prayer for the success of the gospel in the world. That's pretty simple, right? This request reminds us that prayer in part, that prayer in part is meant to be a weapon of spiritual warfare. That our prayers corporately is not only for God's name and his prestige and his renown, but it's that his program, that his kingdom would advance. It's a prayer helping us realize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of darkness in the world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so prayer, in part, is a tool, a weapon for the local church to pray for the advancement of God's kingdom. John Piper, in his wonderful book, Let the Nations Be Glad, writes on this and how the modern church has often miss this point. He says this, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie. You know that image, walkie-talkie, right? Your kids have them, my kids have them, right? They love those things. It's primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. You have one of those intercoms, you're in the basement watching the ball game. Beep, honey, I could use some more soda. Beep, kids, take out the trash. <clears throat> it's not meant to be a, an intercom. It's meant to be a walkie-talkie. And then he says this, it's a great line. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. So good. And so we pray for the presti- God's prestige. We pray for his program. And so we're going to do that. We're going to have another time of prayer. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then we'll have uh, uh, someone come and close us. And then we'll respond in song. And so would you pray with me, church? We're going to pray together. And I would ask specifically that you would ask that God would reorient your and our priorities. That God's prestige and his program would take precedent. And so just spend a moment in prayer, and then someone will come and close us. So we've seen that Jesus has taught us to pray for God's prestige and for his program. Three uh, responses then, three more requests uh, that are centered upon us and our needs and our relationship with others and our relationship Uh, with our enemy and sin. And so, thirdly, we take a look at verse 3. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Verse 3, Give us each day our daily bread. So it's worth noting that it's not until this third request that Jesus teaches us to pray for ourselves, to pray for our own needs. I was talking with someone just this past week, and I don't know who it was, but I I recall the words coming out of my mouth, how Shelly and I need a bigger TV in our bedroom. 
I said, you know, when the kids were watching two movies, all we have is this little dinky thing. We need a bigger TV. And then I thought, eh, we don't need a bigger TV. We're going to want a bigger TV, right? Um, I think Jesus is teaching us about needs here. Give us each day our daily bread. The, the term, the, the term uh, give us in Greek, it's sort of a, a continual thing, right? We uh, repetitively do this. In fact, Jesus teaches us to do it daily, to, to, to each day, daily, give us our daily bread. I don't think that Jesus has in mind solely um, bread. Bread is food, certainly. It's a type of food. And in the, in the Bible, bread can sort of refer to, to food more broadly. That is our dietary needs. And I think we can even safely broaden it more to the daily necessities of life by extension. And, and, and in those days, this would be completely normal to pray. Uh, because in those days, people received their wages usually every day. So they needed, they got their money daily. Their, their daily needs were met. Most of us don't typically sort of live hand to mouth in this sense, but, but this request reminds us that every day, that, that we are continually dependent upon God to meet our provisions, whether our fridge is full or whether it's empty. It's astounding then that Jesus teaches us that the Father cares about great and cosmic things, right? That we should pray that his name would be glorified in all the world and that his kingdom would would advance in all the world. So Jesus says, make your prayers, church together, big, right? Uh, The scope is big, but also the scope is small, that he cares about great things, but he also cares about what we're eating for lunch today. And he cares about the number of hairs on our head. There's no request that is too big or is too small. In fact, the story is told when uh, a parishioner of the great British preacher and pastor G. Campbell Morgan, he preached on prayer. And the woman said, Mr. Morgan, are you telling me that we should tell God everything on our hearts? To which he replied, yes, just like a father. She said, are you telling me then that God is concerned even with the little things in my life? To which he, he, he said, Madam, what makes you think that your big things are big to God? And so we pray for cosmic things and we pray for God's provision in our lives. The petition for provision is, is followed by a fourth request, and it's for God's pardon for God's pardon. Give us each day our daily bread. But then we also pray this, verse 4, forgive us our sins. Father, forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who sins against us. And so just as bread is, is the need for our bodies, so pardon is the basic need for the soul. God, Father, forgive us our sins. So I just want to ask a question. If you are a Christian here today, you've trusted in Christ Christ alone, for the forgiveness of your sins, places like Colossians chapter 2 declare that all of our sins and trespasses have been forgiven. The moment that we placed our faith in Jesus, the past, present, and future, all of our sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb on the cross. So then how can Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our sins? Well, I'll try my best to answer that. We are legally positionally forgiven, securing our eternity with God, and yet we all know that we are sinful saints, that we are declared to be righteous, our 
our eternity is secure, and yet we still struggle with sin. Can I get an amen? We struggle with sin as Christians. And when we sin against our Heavenly Father, um, that relationship is hindered. And so Jesus rightly teaches us to pray, Abba, Father, forgive us of our sins. In fact, First John chapter uh, 1, verses 8 and 9, Jesus, uh, excuse me, John says, if we claim to be without sin, as Christians, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will, what? Forgive us our sins, as Christians, and purify us from all unrighteousness. A very simple and imperfect, but maybe uh, helpful illustration is that if you are a parent and one of your uh, children sins against you, now, it's, it's probably hard for you to imagine a scenario in which that would happen. But just try to use your, uh, your uh, imagination. A child sinned against, sins against you. Uh, they will always be your child. Uh, they can never not be your child. The, the relationship is secure. But, but are they okay with you rela- relationally? Has there been a, a breach in the relationship? Of course there has. What is necessary? repentance from that child and asking for your forgiveness, right? It's a relational context, and I think that's what Jesus is speaking of. But before we move on to our final request, it's worth noting, forgive us our sins for the reason why we can ask our Heavenly Father as Christians to forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. In other words, uh, offering forgiveness to other people when we are sinned against as Christians, it's not secondary, it's not optional, it's not an elective in the course of Christianity, right? It's indicative that you yourself have been forgiven. And so we pray for God's provision, we pray for God's pardon, and then finally, Jesus teaches us to pray for God's protection. He closes this short prayer and lead us not into what? Into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Um, that's kind of a tricky request, too, you know? Like, what is Jesus implying here? <laughs> Father, uh, don't lead us into temptation. It's kind of tricky. It seems to suggest, and it's on the kind of the surface level, that Jesus is telling us to ask our Father not to tempt us into sin or to actively lead us into a situation for the purpose of tempting us. We see in places like James chapter 1, verse 13, James says, um, a little half-brother of Jesus, let, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so how do we reconcile these things? I, th- I think what is happening here, this is not a, a request that the Father cease and desist from tempting us. This is an expression from the heart of a follower of Christ that we have a desire on our part not to enter into temptation, not to give in to sin. In fact, for those of you who are English nerds out there, and I won't call you out if you are, you don't have to raise your hand, but um, there's something in language called elitides. Yes, elitides. Are you ready for that? Elitides is expressing a positive idea by stating its negative opposite. Now, if that went over your head, don't worry, because we do it all the time. Without knowing it. For instance, are you ready? You tell me what this means. It's not rocket science. What does that mean? It's not all that complicated, right? It's simple. It's simple. 
How about this one? He's no spring chicken. What does that mean? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not my first rodeo. I'm very experienced. He's not, no, don't ever say this one. He's not the brightest bulb in the box. What are you saying? Well, that person's kind of, no, no, not smart. Right. Um, that's what's going on here, right? This is a request uh, for the disciple. God, please, we want to remain faithful to you. We don't want to experience temptation. And when we do, we don't want to fall into it. And so we're going to pray as we close, as we have before. And we're going we're gonna to pray for God's provision. And so if there is something in your life or maybe in the life of a loved one, um, then you need the Father's provision. You pray for that. If there's a sin in your life that has been unconfessed, then confess it. If there's a temptation that you're facing or that you're feel fearful, you will give in to. Pray for that, and then we'll close as we have before. So let's pray.